and you're listening to a sermon from Bent Tree Church in Loveland, Colorado. For more information about Bent Tree, visit BentTreeChurch.com. Uh, good morning, Bent Tree. It's good to see everyone here. Uh, it's good to be in the house of the Lord, amen? When we say that, of course, we don't mean this building, we mean these people. This is the house of the Lord. These brothers, these sisters uh, who claim Jesus Christ as the Son of God have been born again by the power of the, the Holy God to, who've made that decision to follow Him in teaching. We repent of our sins, we're baptized, we live our lives with King Jesus as our ruler. Uh, you guys are the house of the Lord. And so we are the church at the same time we come to church to do church. We are the church, but, but we do church. Here's what I mean. Uh, we call it the ordinary means of grace. Not that his grace is somehow ordinary in any way. Rather, it is the regular ordinary way where we, as believers, are poured out. I mean, the grace of God is poured out on us each and every week. So as we gather together here, uh, as we are the blood-bought, redeemed of God, as we pray, as we sing, as we repent of our sins, as we hear the Word of God read aloud, as we hear it preached, and as we follow together um, this teaching uh, from Jesus, God pours out His grace on us, even in our fellowship time, before and after Week after week after week. And listen, we need that, don't we? We need that stuff. Life is hard at best. It's difficult. It's full of problems. We need His grace poured out onto us like a bucket every week. It's why I implore you, don't skip church unless you're sick or out of town. Don't skip church. You need this just like you need your daily bread. Remember, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. We need each other and we need this time of worship. Amen? Not at all making fun of you guys that are joining us online for those that are out of town or sick that can't make it. Uh, but don't make the mistake of thinking that is the same thing as church gathered. It's just not. Remember our mission. Here it is. Growing together into deep-rooted disciples of Christ. That's what our mission is. And notice... Two things, growing together into deep-rooted disciples of Christ. Growing together. Now, why is this so important to remind ourselves of regularly? Because deep-rooted disciples are equipped with the Word of God to fulfill that great commission that our brother Ed just read to us, that he just prayed. Well, let's get going, shall we? If you would, open your Bibles to the Gospel of John, just check in to see if you are with me. Uh, I'm all ready to go here. I'm ready to preach. Y'all ready for some preaching? All right. I've got my beard all fluffed and my new shirt on and my Bible open. And so chapter 7 takes us to Jerusalem in late September, early October at the latest of the three greatest feasts that the Jewish people would celebrate each year. Now the feast is called the Feast of Booths or the Feast of 
tabernacle. Same thing. The city probably had a population of around 140,000 regularly. It swelled to well over a million now during this feast. So Jesus is famous at this point with all the miraculous signs and his teaching. The common people had been arguing among themselves, asking, who is this man, Jesus? So could this be the Messiah, they're asking? The promised one? Or is Jesus just a good man, a good teacher? Now, some were even saying, no, he's a deceiver. He's leading the common people astray. The common people are arguing about who Jesus is, but no one, no one wants to say anything openly because they fear the Jewish leaders who are opposed to Jesus. Anybody who might follow him, they're going to immediately have suspicion on. The Jewish leaders are. So for more than a year now, Jewish leaders have tried to put Jesus to death. More like a year and a half. But the Jewish leaders were afraid of then the common people, the numbers of people starting to rise up. And and possibly in the back of their mind, they're thinking they may have a revolution, a rebellion against the the Roman rule. So get this picture. Both the people and the leaders are watching for Jesus to appear at the start of this festival. Uh, there's a tension in the air between the two groups. But as they're waiting with this tension, Jesus and his disciples, well, they're a no-show for the feast. As it gets underway, they're late to the party, but on purpose, on purpose. So the people just kind of go about their way. They just kind of disperse. The feast starts, it begins. So that's where we left off last week. Asking the question, who is Jesus, but not seeing him yet at the tabernacle. So um, now, our feast of tabernacles. Now, in our last time together, we studied that question in depth. Who could Jesus be? You remember that? A good man, a con man, a myth, a legend, a crazy man, an evil man. And as we looked at scripture, both here and John and in the totality of the Bible, we got this clear answer that none of those labels could possibly be true. We even considered, uh, could Jesus just have been a myth? And the answer was no on all those accounts. None of those seemed to fit at all with what we studied in scripture, did they? That led us to consider the only other possibility left. Jesus must be who he claims to be, the Son of God, come to seek and save the lost. It's either that or that he is a devil. I mean, there's no in-between. Because if you believe any of those other things about who Jesus is, you'll have to describe why you believe nor, uh, and neither the Bible nor anything else that supports it. So can't we just say Jesus was a good teacher? No, we can't say that. He's not just a good man. He's either the son of God or he's evil. Or there's really no other intellectual ground to stand on. I, I think Jesus is the son of God. Do you? Do you? I do. Now, this week, we're going to cover some big ground. We're going to look at two big things, uh, and, and I want you to cover this with me. The first thing is that because of how we answered the very first question last week of who Jesus is, then it just begs to ask the question uh, to us this week, can we trust what Jesus teaches 
And what he says, is it right or wrong? Can we trust what he teaches? Now, the answer to that question, can we trust his teaching, will bring up a big question, and we'll try to cover that in our time as well. Uh, but I'm not going to reveal that till we're at that question. So let's ask, can Jesus be trusted? And to answer that question, we're going to need his, uh, his teaching. Can it be trusted? We're going to need to listen and understand what Jesus teaches. So... And we're going to need to examine some other scripture as well uh, in the Bible to see if what Jesus says matches up with what the rest of the Bible says. Now, we use that standard all the time, don't we? Whoever preaches up there, whoever we listen to, uh, measuring any truth claims we hear by scripture, what does scripture say on the service that can seem like a circular argument to let scripture interpret scripture, but it's not. Here's why. Scripture has to agree with itself. If it doesn't, we know that at least part of it would be wrong. By the way, I've read the Bible completely many, many, many times, and I've never seen a contradiction in it that I could not explain and go, oh, that's what that means. At Bentry, we hold to the old school, orthodox doctrine that Scripture is infallible, inerrant, and listen to me, sufficient. We don't need other truths out there. That means that the Bible is completely and utterly trustworthy as a guide to salvation and the life of faith that you and I are called to, and that it will not fail to accomplish its purpose. Now, the shorthand way to say that is to remember the Latin phrase sola scriptura, meaning scripture alone. Scripture alone. So as we study today, we'll use that scripture here and compare what Jesus' claims are with the rest of scripture. So let's dive in. Look at chapter 7, verse 14. About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up to the temple and began teaching. So he's halfway through the festival, this feast. Jesus finally arrives in the city, but very low-key. No one notices him at first. There's no big grand entrance, no fanfare. That is until he goes to teach at the temple. Now, a couple of things to consider here. First, although no one really notices his arrival, they do notice that when he goes to the temple, that's where everyone, that's the center of activity for this festival, this feast, right away, Jesus makes himself known, not with fanfare, but by simply teaching the word of God. And he does this by going to teach in the most public place in Jerusalem, the temple. It was common for rabbis to go up and teach during this feast on what we now call the temple mount. Second thing I want you to notice here is we shouldn't forget about the social tension in the air between the leaders, the Jewish leaders looking for a way to kill Jesus if they can. They prefer that he is stoned to death at the hands of the crowd for saying something blasphemous. That way, uh, as it's not on their hands. So they're listening to every word. The Jewish leaders want to trap Jesus and boom, they'll pounce on the first thing that Jesus is saying that is blasphemous. Meanwhile, remember, the crowds want to know who Jesus is, so they are hanging on 
to his every word. So everyone's hanging on to Jesus' words. They're asking, could this be the Messiah, the promised one, and can we trust his teaching? The crowds are afraid of the Jewish leaders, and the Jewish leaders are afraid of the crowd. So you get the tension in the air. Meanwhile, Jesus begins to teach in this very public setting. Third thing we should notice here is in verse 14 when it says, up to the temple. That's significant for a couple of reasons. I would love to examine this in a sermon all on its own. We will sometime. But one thing that you need to notice about this little phrase is a physical thing that foreshadows a future event. Now this is deep, but hang with me. The temple mount is at the top of a mount. They would, they would call it a mountain, in here in Colorado, we would say it's a hill. But Jesus physically climbs up steps. He ascends the stairs to go up to the top, to the temple. So you with me? To our ears, that doesn't sound like much of a big thing, but it's a huge foreshadowing and it has huge meaning. Consider the symbolism with me just for a moment. Jesus taking his rightful place as the ruler of his people at the heavenly temple as the king of kings is a foreshadowing of the future when he will reign on high and everything will be complete. That's because the temple at that time was this place that God had chosen to dwell among his people. It's this place where God required the sacrifices to be made It is the place where people could commune with God through their worship, through their priest, offer their offering through the priest as an intermediary. Now, this may be obvious to you, but I want to make sure that you get this. Jesus is the Son of God. Amen? So, therefore, He, as God, is at the temple teaching His people. Physically, God is there. Quite literally, God is speaking to his people from the temple. God is physically with his people at the temple. That's huge. It fulfills all the Old Testament. Now, there there is no regular priest involved standing between God and the people. Jesus is now the high priest standing there. He's going to instruct his people. Second thing I want us to see in the symbolism here is all the people are waiting, expecting to see Jesus come into the city, right? But they miss him. They get tired of waiting, so they go on about their life. They just go, well, I guess he's not coming. Jesus doesn't show when they're expecting or when they're, uh, uh, how they're expecting or when. So then Jesus suddenly then appears at the temple teaching. It's going to blow your mind. This is a picture of Christ's return when he will take us home. It will be sudden. People will have forgotten, oh, we're waiting on Jesus. But he will suddenly appear. Lots of people say they're watching for Jesus, but really they don't know who he is as Savior and Lord. And they are not at church where he is being preached. So they're going to miss Jesus' return. They don't know Jesus. So Jesus is teaching his people. 
a large crowd along with the Jewish leaders. And we can assume all the religious priests are there as well. Before Jesus gets to the festival, festival, the crowd questions about Jesus are about him personally, right? Who is this guy? But what we're about to see is what when he begins to preach, the questions then change from who is he to can we then trust what he says to match up with the scriptures. Now, what we're going to see is that the people, both the crowd, the common people, the Jewish leaders will be surprised because this teaching will be new, it will be different, and not what they've ever heard. So let's look at it, verse 15. The Jews therefore marveled, saying, how is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? Now what Jesus teaches on here, we're not told. We're not told of the sermon. But what we are told about is the people's reaction to the sermon. Does that make sense? So we know that Jesus is teaching out of the Old Testament scriptures because the New Testament is being written as he speaks. Apparently Jesus just knocks it out of the park. The common people are like amazed and even more amazed are the Jewish leaders. That's who's asking this question. But why are they amazed at Jesus' teaching? For two reasons. One, that Jesus knows and understands the scripture. And you go, why is that a big deal? Well, we'll get to that. But two, is that Jesus' preaching is so powerful and so different. No one had ever preached like that before. Both the people are amazed at the Jew, but it's the Jewish leaders that their jaw is on the floor. Now, why is that? How do we know that? Because they ask, how, 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 how is this man have this learning and he's never studied before? Now, let's give some thought to that. How would they know that? The Jewish leaders were the upper class. They had all advanced education while some had super advanced education like a couple of PhDs. They come with, uh, with money and power and influence. They're the creme de la creme, right? But Jesus didn't have any of that stuff. He was poor. He was a blue collar construction worker from a backwater town in Galilee, not even close to any center of power or education that you could learn something like that. By the way, it shows in movies, you know, how Jesus always seems to have this nice accent and some older movies, they always do the English accent. Have you noticed that? And obviously he did not speak English. I just want to let you know on that. Sorry if you're surprised. But the sub, uh, the subtlety that we often miss because of how they portray him in the movies is apparently people from Jerusalem and Judea could instantly recognize a Galilean accent. It's like you can recognize a southern accent right away, can't you? You go, that boy ain't from here. Jesus' accent was probably country-sounding to them, probably very unsophisticated to these Jewish leaders. So what I'm saying is that probably even Jesus' own accent gave the initial impression of him being uneducated. Now, how wrong that notion was, right? The point is that that the Jewish leaders are amazed that Jesus can teach And he can teach so well. 
Jesus can apparently teach from a very, very astute knowledge of the scriptures, so much so that the Jewish leaders are going, wow, people that taught like that were only the well-trained and not even that, just knowledge-wise. He was different in how he took taught. Yet they knew Jesus didn't have any education. Now, the general crowd is also amazed too, but not for the same reason. They're not going to pick up on all that, that other stuff. They hear Jesus teach. And it's amazing to someone like them that he preaches with such authority and not like the scribes and the Pharisees. And they were, they were understanding Jesus' message because his message was clear. It was easy to understand. It was not complicated. He spoke in parables, stories that... Help some of them understand, but there's something that the crowd doesn't understand about Jesus. Something you need to know that the common people will know, we tend to not know here, is when the common people listen to the rabbis rattle on and teach, these religious leaders teach, they simply taught the same thing, repeating word for word exactly what they had been taught by their rabbis. No changes. So it was, a may, it was a memorized script. Whatever scripture was being read, they said the exact same thing. No one tried to be original in what they said. In fact, that was frowned upon. You go, we just don't do that. Repetition was the goal of the average rabbi, and that was considered the only way to teach. But when Jesus was getting up to, to preach, he didn't do that. He brought a message from God And it was original. Often in the other gospels, you hear people say of Jesus' teaching, this is amazing. We've never heard this before. Jesus is not simply repeating what other rabbis had been saying. Both groups, the leaders now and the common people, are amazed at what Jesus is teaching, but for different reasons. So we got that picture. And they're talking among themselves, asking, how is Jesus is teaching, how is he teaching the way that he teaches? He shouldn't have the ability. It shouldn't be so original. So Jesus answered those questions that the people are asking, apparently, in their hearts. Jesus just kind of knows. So listen how Jesus' next statement here will begin to answer both of those questions of these two groups. Verse 16, so Jesus answered them. My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. The teaching is not his. Jesus points out right away that Jesus is the intermediary between God and man. That this message he is preaching is from God. Now get this, when a Bible teacher back then and all the way through history and even now teaches the Bible... Hopefully, the Bible teachers have studied the scripture in depth. I have. That's one of the, the key roles I play at, at Bentry Church. Is I study God's word daily for hours a day. and make sure that I understand as much as I can understand. Then I run it by other people, other shepherding elders. And then I communicate those truths of the scripture to you, the church, as, as correctly as I can. 
But Jesus didn't have time to study God's word. I mean, he didn't not have time. He didn't have to study God's word. He didn't even have an education. Why? Because of what we read back in verse 15. I'm sorry, John 1, verse 1 through 5. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Do you remember this? In the beginning was the Word. This is talking about Jesus, the Word of God. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So he was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him... Again, talking about Jesus, was not anything made that was made. Jesus made it all. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Jesus didn't have to learn the word of God. He is the word of God. Do you see? He is the Son of God, the second member of the Trinity. He is the living Word. How could an uneducated man like this, he's God's Son, he's communicating the message straight from God the Father. The answer to the confusion the people and the leaders had is to understand who Jesus is. Now remember our question for today though, can we trust then what he says? This is important because Jesus will address this question uh, now in verse 17. He's going to give us a way to know if Jesus is who he says he is by his actual teaching. Will it match up with what God says? Watch what it says in verse 17. Back to John 7. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I'm speaking on my own authority. It is self authenticating. What is Jesus saying? If anyone's will is to do God's will, now let me ask you a question. Wouldn't that mean that the person who has God's will as his own has been made alive in Christ Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit? Isn't that what that means? That faith has been given to him or her? Yes, that's what that means. Because we read what the apostle Paul says and as he quotes from Psalm 14. He says this in Romans chapter 3 verse 10 through 12. As it is written, now he's quoting Psalm 14. None is righteous, no not one. Let's check it out. How many are righteous? None. No one understands, no one seeks God. How many people understand or seek God? No one. He says, all have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Just one more test here. How many people are worthless? All of us. All of us. You go, you can, you can tweet this if you want to and just say right now, hey, my pastor said that we're all worthless. What it's saying is no one naturally seeks God. No one. No one understands God. No one is righteous. So if we do understand what Jesus' words are saying, if they begin to resonate within us, doesn't that mean that we have been made alive by those words through the power of the Holy Spirit? The answer is yes. We say Jesus' words differently. Uh, We could translate this to say, the person that knows me 
and has been given life, who knows who I am, will recognize that my teaching is from God. Because we have the spirit of the living God living and active and working in us. Now remember the question is, can we trust Jesus' message, his teaching? And we could add to that question the Jewish leaders are wondering why Jesus can teach like this when he does not have an education. Because look at verse 18. Back to John 7. The one who seeks, uh, sorry, the one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory. But the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true and in him there is no falsehood. So let's ask this question. What does it mean for someone to speak on their own authority? How can you, how can you speak on your own authority? So let's ask this. What is authority? R.C. Sproul uh, defines authority this way. I like it. Simple definition. Authority is the power to impose obligation. Authority is the power to impose obligation. The police officer pulls you over. Walks up to your car, says, may I see your driver's license, proof of insurance, registration? Do you show it to him? Yes. Now, why do you show it to him? Because he has the power of authority. And a Smith and Wesson on his hip. To speak under your own authority is to claim that you have the truth. You have the authority to decide what truth is. So if a guy or girl says, this is my truth, then you know it comes from their authority. They have determined what truth is and what it's not. Now, why does Jesus say that you would do this? Why would you come up with your own truth? Well, Jesus says it's clearly... Because you're seeking your own glory. Or you can say your goal in life is to bring glory to yourself, to glorify yourself. Folks, this is at the very crux of our regular wrestling of temptation and sin. Every day when we come up with this, we say, are we God or is God God? Jesus is saying, if you're speaking on your own authority, you're seeking glory for yourself. This is the heart of the sin problem itself. Right here, pride. We're told that Satan's fall from from heaven was due to his pride. He wanted to be like God. And if you think about Adam and Eve's sin, pride was at the heart of that sin as well. Because what had Satan tempted them with? That they could be like God. Now the irony of this, I don't know if you've ever thought of it, is they were already like God. This took them further away. And if you're you're like God, in your own pride, seeking your own authority, you are becoming God yourself. You say, "I, I pull the decisions. As we wrestle with temptation to sin, think about it. It is to follow your plans to bring glory to yourself, happiness to yourself every time. Temptation whispers, 
I know what's right and wrong. I know what I want to do. I don't need God's plans. Remember, we're asking now, can we trust Jesus' teaching? This is what he's saying. Or you can ask, is Jesus getting me right? Is Jesus understanding the true nature of my heart? Am I trying to get the glory? Jesus continues in the first half of verse 19. He says, has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Now, what is Jesus communicating here? The law was given by God, which we think of as the Ten Commandments and the other laws. It's not just the Ten Commandments. We think of that as the foundation. That law Jesus is referring to here is all of the Hebrew Scriptures together. The Old Testament, that's what we think of as the law. So it's life-giving in that. It's the Scriptures. Jesus is saying to the religious leaders, you say keep the law, but you don't. And no one does, yet you tell all the others that they need to keep the law in order to gain heaven. You don't do that. You don't even keep the law. And worse, Jesus says, you have created a, a new false religion out of the law that you says gives life, and it doesn't. The law was the standard of God's glory. That's true. Sin, we know, is failing to meet God's glory. The law was to show that people needed an intermediary to get to God. They could not get past the law. Jesus is that intermediary. That we are unable to keep the law. But look what Jesus adds here at the end of the verse. It's a bit confusing Unless you're in the know. So let's get in the know. Jesus says this in the second half. He says, has, uh, has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? He adds this little line on, why do you seek to kill me? Seems like a, a wrong place for that verse. But Jesus is pointing out to the religious leaders who are hatching a plan to have Jesus killed. Now remember, there's two groups listening here. The crowd, the average person, and the other group, the religious leaders. That's who he's addressing with this. The crowd doesn't realize what Jesus is referring to. Some do, some don't. To that last line there. Why are you trying to kill me? If you're saying keep the law. But the religious leaders, they're in the know. They understand. The religious leaders, they want Jesus dead. They are planning. They're, see, they're setting plans in place to have Jesus killed. Now, why does Jesus bring this up at this point, even though it's true? I mean, why bring this out when talking about speaking on his father's behalf? Because planning on having Jesus killed, the religious leaders are breaking God's law right there. And they know it. Jesus calls out their sin. Jesus is revealing the sinful intent of their heart. The commandment, do not murder. They're breaking it. In other words, Jesus is saying, you say that you keep the law, but I can prove to you right now that you don't. I know that you're trying to kill me. By the way, I get the picture of these men looking at each other uh, going, how does he know that? How does he know that? So we read in verse 20. The crowd answered, you have a demon who is seeking to kill you. 
By the way, this is what the devil does right here, is just to lie and insult, especially when confronted with the truth. They switch immediate to lies and insults. Uh, look at the, the, uh, the evil people in this crowd, which probably contains, so let's be honest, some demon-driven guys are telling Jesus, you have a demon. Isn't that ironic? Isn't that funny? Talk about getting something wrong. But notice how Jesus replies. He doesn't reply to their insult, but he stays on point of him speaking only what the Father says. This is important for our learning. Don't let the enemy throw you off track. Stay on what the Father says. Always stick to the Bible and don't get into a different argument. Just let it go by. So look at verse 21. Jesus answered them. Notice he doesn't say anything about it. He says, I did one work and you all marveled at it. Now, Jesus is referring back to the scene, the last time Jesus had been in Jerusalem, more than a year earlier, when Jesus had healed the lame man by the pool of Bethesda. You remember that? And he had done it on a Sabbath. The Jewish leaders had accused Jesus of sin, of breaking their custom. But Jesus hadn't sinned. He hadn't broken the law. He'd broken their custom. In fact, he had done a good deed in healing this man. Jesus continues in verse 22. Moses gave you circumcision. Not that it was from Moses, but from the fathers. And you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. The Israelites had been commanded to circumcise their baby boys on the eighth day of their life. So that meant that if the circumcision fell on a Sabbath, the law of the Sabbath didn't apply to those who were doing the circumcision. Do you see what Jesus is getting at? He's telling them, look, you think that circumcision's okay, but making a man whole is wrong? He's pointing out to the crowd, to the Jewish leaders, their hypocrisy. Look at verse 23. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? Jesus is saying, you guys are messed up. These religious leaders are trying to find salvation by the law and judging by the law. But Jesus is saying, look, I'm here to make men whole. And you're missing it. So this is powerful what Jesus says next. And this may confuse you, so hang with me. Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. Now this is that thing, the second big thing I didn't tell you before, because I don't want to throw you off. It seems like this shouldn't be here at first glance, but this fits perfectly with what we're seeing in Jesus' teaching, if you think about it. It goes hand in hand with the first question of, can we trust what Jesus is teaching here? He says, do not judge by the appearance or appearances, but judge with what? Right judgment. Jesus calls these religious leaders out for judging by what they think should, things should be. But Jesus is saying, judge with right judgment. What's right judgment? Well, logic would say, if there is right judgment, then there also is a what? A wrong judgment. 
So again, what is right judgment if there's wrong judgment? It's the word of God, correct? I hope you get that. It's the word of God. It's sufficient for everything. These religious leaders were using the law plus, plus their own thoughts on how the law should be applied. And they mainly centered on tradition. Jesus says, no, you need to judge. You need to judge, but you must judge rightly, not wrongly. And that is to judge according to God's commands of what is right and wrong. Not on what you think is right and wrong. Now, this goes against so much of what we hear today. Sometimes even in the church. Because what do you hear about judgment? If someone says, if someone claims something to be right or wrong based on the Bible, you hear people say, judge not. They don't know any other words of Jesus, but they know that. What are they trying to quote from? But they're often wrong is this, Matthew 7, verse 1 and 2. Let's take a moment and look at it. Jesus is speaking. He says, judge not that you may not be judged. Some people know the whole verse. Most people just knew, know those first things. It says, for with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Now, most people stop there. This has got to be one of the most widely quoted passages of Jesus. But like we said, it's almost always quoted wrong because it's quoted out of context. Now listen to me. Always, always, always make sure you read scripture in context. Most people think Jesus means you can't tell me what's right and wrong. I define right and wrong for myself. That's simply not true. Because that'd make you God. What's funny, when someone quotes Matthew 7, 1, and says, you shouldn't judge. Have you ever thought about this logically? They're breaking their own command. Have you thought that? You go, wait, aren't you judging me right now? And you just said not to? Because they're judging you by saying you shouldn't judge. But listen to Jesus' words very carefully. It doesn't mean that we cannot show discernment in judgment that way, over what is right and wrong, particularly within the body of Christ, the church, according to the Bible. How do we know that? Because we always want to read Scripture in light of the the context of where it is, what it's saying, when it's written, who it's talking to. Now look down in Matthew 7, verse 6. Just for a moment, this is in that same context, says this, Do not give dogs what is holy and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn and attack you. Let me just ask, how are you to know who the dogs and the pigs are without judgment? Jesus is saying you have to judge. But the question is, by what standard do you judge by? Jesus is saying we must judge in life. We must judge between what is right and wrong. But do it with the right information. Don't do it with your own information. Judge by the right standard, he's saying. And please get this. It's not just saying, hey, judge if you want to. If you feel like it, go for it. No, no, no. It's saying to live the Christian life and to follow Jesus, you're going to have to be able to identify rightly, judge, but not by appearances, 
or feelings, but by the Word of God alone. All right, jump back to Matthew 7, still Matthew 7, but jump back up to verse 3 through 5. Look at this. You'll recognize it right away. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Who says Jesus is not funny? I think that's funny. A guy walking around with a log going, let me get to your eye. We're, I'm an eye surgeon. You know, he's, this is funny. So look, why does he do that? Look at verse four. Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First, take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Now, Jesus is clearly using an analogy right here. What's the goal? The goal is getting the splinter, in this analogy, out of your brother's eye. That's the goal. But you can't do that with a log sticking out of your own eye. He's saying, if you judge sin in your own heart, if you, he's saying, if you judge with sin in your own heart, how can you help get sin out of your brother's heart? Don't miss this. Don't miss this. This is huge. Most Christians get this wrong. So get this right. The goal is to get the splinter out of your brother's eye, right? That's the goal. And to do that, you need to get the log out of your own eye first to get rid of your own sin. Now notice it doesn't say that we should leave the sin in place for us or for them. It doesn't say since you got a log, leave it there and don't mess with your brother. That would mean that you would have to judge your own actions not according to how you feel or think, but according to what the Bible says, if it's the goal trying to get the log out of our own eye. Do you see what we mean here? To judge your own sin according to what God says we must have scripture. Until we do that, we can't help our brothers or sisters out with their sin. Do you see that? All right, let's go back to John 7. When Jesus says in verse 24, do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. What is Jesus telling the crowd? What is he telling us? That we have to judge, it's our job, but to do it with right judgment, which is what? Well, he says, what well, it's not. It's not by appearances. Or to say it another way, it's not by what will appear to be right and wrong. Ooh, this messes us up. But we have to make a decision based solely on what God says is right and wrong in his word, the Bible. In other words, it's not what we understand right and wrong to be or what we feel or sense that it should be, but rather what God says is right and wrong. Now, this is key. Before we can do that, we have to know God's word. We have to pour it into us daily. It's why we have to be in Christian fellowship as a church so other believers can help us and we can help them. As we talk about Bentry Church of helping each other follow that discipleship pathway to grow into all God calls us to be, that's what we're talking about. Helping me, me helping you, helping each other see what God says through studying the Bible together, getting wrong thinking out of our head about doctrine. Because we all have some, don't we? 
walking that road through life's ups and downs and learning to rely on Jesus. But look, look, and each other. By the way, the first level of church discipline, people kind of freeze up when I say church discipline. The first level of church discipline is when a brother sees me making a poor, sinful decision about my life with Jesus nudging him. He gently comes, but he firmly reminds me what Jesus has taught us both in his scripture. Do you see how that worked? That, my brothers and sisters, is the first level of church discipline. Then discipleship, walking along that pathway, making sure that we're walking according to God's plans so that we might help those that we're traveling with. That's discipleship. And we can't do that with sin in our own hearts. We must stay repentant each and every week. I mean, every day you should repent. But each and every week as you're starting in worship here, just take time to repent of your sins. Look, the goal is not condemnation and our judging rightly. The goal is restoration. That's the goal. Salvation. This is love that we help each other follow Christ up that discipleship pathway. Well, today and last week, we've answered those those questions from Scripture, haven't we? One, who is Jesus? Is he the Christ or is he the devil? We said he's the Christ. And two, can we trust what Jesus says? Answer is yes. Jesus says, judge according to the Bible. Hold even his words accountable to it. And by the way, he is the word of God himself. So can we trust Jesus? Can we trust what he says? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we come to you right now in the name of your Son and our Savior, Jesus the Christ. We say, God, help us to walk this road to become more like your son. But God, show us how to do that as brothers and sisters of the local body, the church. The local expression of this worldwide thing we call the church. So God, I pray right now that we would look at our own heart and examine the sin. As you do that, look at your own heart. Just stay in an attitude of prayer. Is there sin that you need to repent of right now? Are you making plans that are against God, against his word? Like you go, these are my plans, but God says clearly no. Repent of that. Ask him to, to lead you through that temptation. Then, pray this, God help us to see our brothers and sisters and walk with them and together examine the word of God to get rid of sin in our own hearts and among the body. God help us to follow you, help us to judge rightly, show us your word, help us to know your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to this sermon from Bentry Church. To get connected at Bentry and for more information, please visit bentreechurch.com.